The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. A couple quick announcements uh, that you guys definitely want to know about. First of all, there are so many things happening at Heritage um, that it has highly outgrown the amount of time we have to announce things on Sunday. So that's why we started doing this. Uh, so if you guys got a yellow sheet when you came in, if you're colorblind, I'm sorry, but it looks like this. Um, you can just assume it's yellow. If you got one of these when you came in, this is chocked full of things that Heritage uh, has got going on. So if you're looking for uh, stuff to get plugged into, stuff to help out with, serve, and there's all kinds of things in this. So please take a look at that. Um, a few things that are a little more time sensitive that I need to speak with you about. Um, the first one is the holiday baskets. Uh, okay, so if you guys are, are helping with that, uh, next week we're actually going to, right after church, we're actually going to go out and disperse those holiday baskets throughout the community, which is going to be awesome. So if you're helping with that, be aware of that. Um, if you're wanting to help with that, if you're either wanting to identify people that could use the basket, uh, contribute, um, or volunteer, if you're wanting to do any of those three things, it has to be today for that. Um, if it's not today, then um, it's gonna, today's going to be the deadline. So if you want to get involved, stop by the Connect Center on the way out. Talk to those, those guys and, and get that sorted. Uh, one other thing, we're having pastor's coffee. Um, well, I actually forgot we were having pastor's coffee for the first service. I didn't even go, did I? I missed that. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay. So after service, pastor's coffee. I just... <laughs> Uh, pastor's coffee after service. So if you're new to Heritage and if you're trying to figure out kind of what we're all about, what's our DNA, what's our culture, all that kind of stuff, um, stop by the coffee shop on your way out. All the, um, most of the staff, hopefully I'll be there this time. Um, most of the staff and pastors and Jeff will be there. Um, talk a little bit about kind of who we are and what we do and what the next step is to get plugged in. Uh, and then lastly, next Sunday, after both services, uh, we're going to have a tutorial for anyone interested in getting in a huddle group. So huddle groups, that's what we call our community groups, small groups, cell groups, whatever you've heard them called before. Um, we believe in community. Community is a big piece uh, of our culture here at Heritage. So if you're interested in that, want to learn about that, stop by um, the, the coffee shop next, next week and you, you'll hear a little bit more. Everybody got that? Everybody dialed? Let's stand back up. I know you just sat down and you already got to stand back up. I would ask you guys to do something for me before we approach God's word, and that is to take 20 seconds and, and, and ask the Lord that he would speak to you this morning. Something happens, guys. Something happens when you, when you say, Lord, speak. Lord, speak. I'm listening. And you open your heart and you focus your mind and you show him that you are, you're ready and willing to submit yourself under his word. Something happens in your heart and I want to invite you guys to do that right now. So take 20 seconds with heads bowed, invite the Lord to speak to you this morning. Father in heaven, you are high and lifted up. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, has the ability to cut through all of our excuses, all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our hiddenness, all of our baggage. Your word is the ability to unmask the real issue to unveil the real cancer, to put to death the flesh and sin, to give us life. And we sit at your feet this morning, Jesus, Rabbi, Master, Lord, Teacher, Christ. Teach us from your word. Speak through me, please. Holy Spirit, we invite you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Luke chapter 4, if you guys have your Bibles, if anyone needs a Bible, please put a hand up in the air. We'll bring one to you. I'd really love for you guys to have your nose in the scriptures this morning with me. Luke chapter 4. I'm 
What is this thing that we're in right now as believers called the middle? The middle place. We were saved, justified, assuming that you've believed the gospel in here. We are promised that we will be glorified, we'll go to heaven, we'll be with the Father. And yet we find ourselves in the middle place. What is that, that middle place? Theologians have called it the already not yet. It is the complete but not finished. The promised but not consummated. The purchased but not picked up. Sometimes it feels like we're on layaway, doesn't it? God has made a promise and we're sitting in a bag <laughs> waiting to be picked up. I remember um, almost six years ago now, and yeah, six years ago now, wow, getting old, um, when uh, I, I had been dating my wife for four, four months and I knew that I loved her and I knew that she was um, an amazing woman of God, unlike anyone I'd met, and I, I knew that she needed to be my bride and I needed to seal the deal. So I went down to the ring shop um, with pretty much no money in my pocket and uh, looked at rings, you know, like you do, and um, realized right away that I could not afford them and um, decided, do I want to put it on the credit card? She's going to have to pay it off when she marries me. You know, is that fair to her? Like, no, no, it's not fair to her. So, so I made the right decision, uh, and I picked out a ring that I thought she would like and that I knew I could afford over time, and, and I put it on layaway. And it was really hard to do because I would have married her right then. But I, I had to wait. And I just found myself in this middle place. And every two weeks, I would get my paycheck, and I would go, and I would pull out $200, and I would go down to the ring shop, and I would put down $200, and I would ask them, hey, can I look at it? And they'd say, of course. And they'd pull it out, and I would, I would examine it, and it was valuable to me, and it was something I was longing to give to my bride. And the second that I had the last amount of money, I got the ring, I went, took her dad to lunch, asked him for her hand, and took her, and then proposed all in the same day. I was really excited to marry my wife. I'm still excited to be married to my wife. So there is something about this middle place, though. This middle place where, where things haven't yet been fulfilled, but they've been promised. Why is that there? Why do we have to be in that middle place? It's uncomfortable. Why can't we just go straight to heaven? Why can't we just be saved and then glorified? And we could ask the same question about Jesus. Why did Jesus have to live 33 years as a human being? Why didn't Jesus just come down as a full-grown man, go to the cross, atone for sin, and then we'd be done? Why did he have to live in this middle place and the already not yet? Why did he have to do that? It seems to me, and the Bible, that there is something that happens in that uncomfortable space. Something that takes place in the middle and the already not yet. Something that takes place on layaway. Something that happens when you're in process. Something that happened when Jesus was in process. And guys, we are in process. Amen? Everybody say, I'm in process. Say it one more time. I'm in process. Okay, remember that. You've been justified. You were foreknown. You were predestined. You will be glorified. And right now, you're in process. Theologians call it sanctification. It's the process of becoming like Christ, and it's uncomfortable. And Jesus, this might shock you, actually had to go through the same process. Look at our text, verse 1 and 2, chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. Luke gives us a short synopsis, a zoomed-out picture of what we're about to look at in these two verses. He says that Jesus had to be tempted. Now, i got to ask a question here, and I don't think it's too weird to ask this. Why did Jesus have to be tempted? Does this seem kind of weird to you? That the, the uncreated one who created all things is being tempted by someone he created to indulge in things that he created. Kind of weird? Kind of weird. Well, three things real quick. Here's why Jesus needed to be tempted. Look at verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the what? 
Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. Okay, so he's been baptized by John the Baptist. This is a crowning moment for him. This is the inauguration of his ministry. And Luke doesn't really go into detail about it for whatever reason, but he does say Jesus, after 30 years of obscurity living and growing up as a young man, finally came to his age of 30, goes to the Jordan River, gets baptized just like we had to, gets baptized, but then he doesn't go straight into ministry. You notice that? Something happens. There's a middle place for Jesus that he has to go through. He doesn't just jump straight into his three years of ministry, which led to the cross. Something had to happen first. That thing that had to happen was the temptation of Christ. After he's baptized, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. Now, the first reason Jesus had to be tempted is right in front of your face. Why? Because God led him to be tempted. Now, that's a little weird you think about it. God led him to be tempted? Why would God lead Jesus to be tempted? It would make more sense if Jesus just happened to be tempted, if Satan just happened to come up uh, and tempt Jesus. But God, the Father, in all his all-knowing knowledge and supremacy, is leading by the power of the Holy Spirit Jesus into temptation? Why? Why would God do that? Because God did it, number one. The second reason, this one may shock you. Okay, this one, I'm still trying to get my head around it. The second reason Jesus needed to be tempted was to learn obedience. It was to learn obedience. Now you say, how can God learn obedience? He's perfect. Hebrews tells us he learned obedience. Now, I want, to under, I want you to understand something, and Pastor Jeremy taught on this a few weeks back. A few weeks back. Something, understand something about the incarnation of Jesus. That just means when Jesus came in human flesh. When Jesus came in human flesh, he did not stop being God. He continued to be God, but he willingly decided to set aside his divinity and power and chose to fully rest himself on the physicality of being a human being. You understand that? That means that Jesus had to learn. As Jeremy pointed out to us, he had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to eat. He had to learn how to do all the things that we have to learn. And he also had to learn how to depend and obey the Father in the middle place. He had to learn how to do that. Now, obedience there doesn't imply that he was sinful. Because he has to learn it because he's never had to do it before. The Godhead in all of eternity never had to learn obedience because the Godhead was in perfection, but now Jesus has chose to step out of that perfection and to step into a human body with all of its flaws, with all of its limits, and to limit himself to that human body. So now Satan knows that. He had to learn obedience. Well, why did he have to learn obedience? He had to learn obedience so that he could teach us and model for us how to be obedient. He had to learn how to go through that middle place so that we, as Christians, have a model of how to go through that middle place. Look at what the author of Hebrews says, chapter 2, verse 17. He says, therefore, he, being Jesus, had to be, wasn't optional, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Every respect, he had to be made like us, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Why does that matter? It matters because it means that Jesus was actually tempted. Now, when I first read that, years ago, I thought to myself, who cares about the temptation of Jesus? He's God. He isn't tempted. What does Satan possibly have on him? He was tempted because Jesus chose to set aside his divinity and allow Satan to be tempted because God led Jesus, Jesus to be tempted. If this, was a, a, if this was a battle between Jesus and his full divinity and, and Satan, it wouldn't even be a fight. Satan would even dare try to tempt God, but Satan is capitalizing on a moment in time that Jesus has purposed to set aside his power and live and the weakness of what it is to be a creature, to be a human. It's fascinating stuff. He needed to model obedience 
for us. This text deserves our highest attention this morning. Amen? Because in this text, we learn how to obey like Christ did. We learn how to exist in the middle place like Christ did. And we see what value is in that. Listen, guys, as Christians, we spend almost all of our time thinking about what God is going to do through us. God, when are you going to send me out? When is it going to be my time? When am I going to get the promotion? When am I going to get that husband or wife or those kids or that responsibility? When will I have the doctorate? When will I have the degree? When will I have the pedigree? When will you start using me, God? And his answer is, I'm more concerned about what's in you than what I do through you. He's very concerned about what is in you. That is his ultimate work of sanctification. He can do stuff through anything. You think I need to be up here? He could send a donkey up here, and it'd probably sound about the same. He doesn't need me, right? He doesn't need me to do anything. He allows me to partner with him for some reason, but what God is ultimately doing in me is not just using me. He is doing something in me. That is the process that we are in. How much God does through us is often determined by how much we are willing to let him do things in us. It's important. The title of this message is The Freedom of Obedience. And my heart for you guys is to, to reveal to you as the scripture declares that there is freedom in obedience to God. There's freedom in that. The outline looks really just like this. Two parts. The first thing we're going to talk about is the playbook of the enemy. In other words, how did he tempt Satan? The second thing we're going to look at is the battle of temptation. The playbook, I'm sorry, the playbook of temptation and the battle of temptation for you meticulous note takers. So let's start with the playbook of temptation. Now, before we dig into all three of these, uh, there's a few things that Luke, the physician, wants us to understand before we we dig in, okay? There's a few things he wants us to, to stop and think about. The first thing is the tempter. He wants us to understand that someone is tempting Jesus, Jesus is not tempted by his sinfulness because he doesn't have sinfulness. Someone is tempting Jesus. Guys, listen. We have an enemy. We have an enemy. And he hates God. And he hates you. And he hates your marriage. And he hates your parenting. And he hates the gospel. And he hates your faith. And he thinks all day long, 24 hours a day, how to shipwreck your faith. He doesn't care if you do drugs. He wants you to do drugs so that you deny God. He, w- he doesn't care if you, if, you, if, you, if you fall to lust. He wants you to fall to lust so that you're not useful to God, so that your faith is shipwrecked. That's what he cares about. He hates your faith. The Bible is very clear that we have an enemy and that that enemy is tirelessly working to shipwreck our faith and trust in God. He's working here to do the same. He roams, roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Luke wants us to notice who is tempted. You say, well, it's obvious, right? Jesus is tempted. Yeah, but why Jesus? Why now? Why is it in this moment that Jesus is tempted? Because Satan knows that in this moment, Jesus is just about to launch onto the scene with a magnificent display of ministry for three years. He is going to heal the sick, cast out the demons, proclaim the gospel, save the sinner, and usher in the kingdom by the cross. And Satan knows it. And Satan is like, I got to get him now. You want to draw the fire of the enemy? Start serving Jesus. He'll be all over. You think he's on the guy in the bar who's drunk? No, he's in the church trying to debilitate the saints from doing the work of the kingdom. That's where he's at. Got to recognize that. Notice the place of temptation. Satan doesn't tempt Jesus while he's at a synagogue with other you know, believers. He doesn't, t- he doesn't tempt Jesus when he's at the temple making sacrifice or any of these things. Satan tempts Jesus while he's in the wilderness. The word for wilderness here that he was tempted in, it literally means, hold on, I lost it. 
Oh no, guys, I lost my place. You may never know what it means. <laughs> Here it is. Jeshimon, which literally means devastation. The place of temptation is devastation. This is a terrible place. This is a dry desert just outside of the Dead Sea. Okay? This is the place that Satan attacks Jesus. It's not a comfortable place. It's a place of great pain. It's a, a place of great weakness. He's not only in a place of great weakness, he's starving. He hasn't had food in 40 days. This is when Satan decides to attack Jesus. Don't think for a minute Satan's going to come after you when you've just had a, an amazing time of worship. He's going to come after you when you're down. He's going to kick you while you're on the ground. He does that. He comes at Jesus at the most vulnerable point, point the most vulnerable moment, and he knows it. Now, Satan has one objective in mind with all three of these temptations. He has one objective. Now, he may bring three different temptations, and we can look at them, but ultimately, he is trying to do one thing, and it's very clear what that one thing is. He is trying to break up the unity of the Father and the Son. He hates the relationship that they have. That's why he hates the relationship that you, church, have with the Son. He hates the relationship within the Trinity, and you have been invited as the bride of Christ to be part of that. That's why he hates it. He wants to break the unity between the Father and the Son. He wants Jesus to step out of obedience and trust and faithfulness to the Father and break the ties of the unity, that's of, the, of the Trinity. That's what he's trying to do. Satan is attacking the sonship of Jesus. He says over and over and over again, if you're the Son of God, do this. Satan is attacking the submission of Jesus. And surprisingly, Satan is attacking the sinlessness of Jesus. What I mean by that is if Jesus, if Satan can get Jesus just to sin a little bit, think about this. If, if Satan can get Jesus just to step outside of God's will, even just a, just a millimeter, the implications of that are that Jesus is no longer the spotless lamb that can take away the sins of the world. He no longer is the perfect propitiation, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb. If Satan can get Jesus just to, just to let his guard down, just a, just a tiny, bat, tiny bit, then Satan, is, he's, done his, he's done his work. Jesus is no longer the perfect lamb. There's no room for error here. There's no room for error. Notice that these temptations, though they are temptations, are truly at their heart, their lies. That's all they are. You know, Satan has no power over you. He has no power over you. Satan has been given authority, and that authority is to rule the kingdoms of darkness. And you, church, and I want a good amen after this, you are children of light. Man, he has no power over you. All he can do is talk. And so what he does with Jesus is exactly what he does with us. He comes to him knowing he can't lay a finger on him, but he can try to convince Jesus to destroy himself. For Jesus to self-destruct himself. For Jesus to turn the wheel and wreck the sovereign plan of salvation that has been laid before the foundations of the earth. That's what he wants to do. So every one of these is a lie. And let me tell you, every time he, every time he tempts Jesus with a lie, it sounds like truth. You'll see. It sounds like, it's incredible. Satan will tell you 1,000 truths just to feed you and shove one lie down your throat and you won't even see it. He makes these things sound like phenomenal opportunities of faith for Jesus. Jesus, don't you want to show that you're the son of God? What an amazing opportunity. You'll see. So, three lies. There are three lies here for you note takers. The first one is this. The first lie we see is that there is sonship without hardship. That there is sonship without hardship. Look at verse three and four. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Why would it be sin to turn a rock into bread? That seem funny to you? That's a temptation? I mean, it's not a temptation for us, because I don't know about you, but I can't, I can't turn a rock into bread. Okay? 
But for Jesus, you know, he's, he, he, has, he, he has the ability to access his divinity, right? If he wants to, he can say, all right, enough of this human thing. I'm tapping into my divine thing, and I'm going to do this. But why, why would it be wrong for Jesus to turn a rock into bread? I mean, is it wrong to eat? Is this an anti-carb thing? Is this like a paleo heaven? Like, you know, like the paleo people love this verse. Like, see, bread, Satan. I mean, the first service didn't get that joke. They were, there's no paleo eaters in there. Okay. I mean, why is that sinful? It's sinful because what Satan is asking Jesus to do is to access his divinity, to stop fully resting on his humanity. Listen to what Kent Hughes says about this, and I'll put it up on the screen here. He says, he had followed the Father's will in obeying the Spirit's impulse to fast in the wilderness. And now, in his hunger, the Father had not seen fit to provide him with needed food. So Christ was tempted to provide for his material needs apart from the will of the Father. And furthermore, to go outside the natural order to meet his needs. To momentarily, listen to this phrase, to momentarily suspend living like a real human. To us, that looks like Satan tempting us to get off the couch and make a sandwich. Because that's really how hard it would have been for Christ. Maybe a little easier than that. Maybe like a hot pocket. Maybe, you know, like get up, put a hot pocket. I mean, it would have been nothing for him to turn a piece of, of stone into bread. But the temptation lies. The, the lie is, God doesn't really love you. If he loved you, you would have bread. The lie is that there is no sonship without hardship. The lie is that, that, that if you're a son of God, that you will not suffer. If you're a son of God, you will not be hungry. And Satan knows the scriptures. The scriptures tie very uniquely the faith of believers to the sustenance of believers. So in other words, if you're a children of God, you get fed. Look at the manna in the wilderness. The Garden of Eden. God provides for his. So Satan is saying, hey, if you're the son of God, why hasn't he provided for you? You must not be the son of God. He must not really love you. Hey, you're the son of God. Just turn that into bread. Have a snack. Do it. Why not? Seems like a pretty good argument. The temptation is to step out of his divinity and to, to step out of his humanity and into his divinity. The idea that we live for what is in front of us rather than what God has for us. This is the oldest lie, isn't it? What Satan is saying is, if you're a son of God, then you won't suffer. It's, it's a gospel without suffering. Does it sound familiar? I sure hear a lot of that today. I hear a ton of that in the prosperity gospel thinking. If you're a son of God, you will not struggle. If you struggle, it's because you don't have enough faith. Since when did the gospel come void of suffering. Pretty sure the call is to go pick up our cross. Like Jesus. We will be tempted because he was tempted. To be a son of God is to go through suffering. It doesn't mean he doesn't love us. In fact, it solidifies his love for us as he provides for us. Jesus is confident in this moment that God led him in the wilderness and that God has chosen not to feed him and that God knows why he's chosen not to feed him. And Satan can't seem to get a shoe in. There's two sub-narratives here I just want to touch on really quickly. A sub-narrative is a smaller thing happening that, that maybe isn't as noticeable, but the author, Luke, would definitely want you to pick up on it. The sub-narrative is, is, is this. There's two of them. The first one is that in this moment, in rejecting Satan's temptation to eat bread, that Jesus is becoming the greater Adam. Think about this. John MacArthur says, we already know that Satan could conquer the sinless Adam. Okay, we've read Genesis 1 through 3. Got it. The question remains, can Satan conquer the sinless Jesus? If Adam was in Eden, Jesus was in anti-Eden. So put this picture together in your head for me, okay? You, you on one side, you have Adam who is in the perfect environment for obedience, you have Jesus who is in the worst environment for obedience. You have Adam who is in the garden with food that he could po never possibly eat. More food than he can handle. You have Jesus in the wilderness who's starving. 
You have Adam in the garden who has fellowship and relationship. God is there with him and Eve is there and they have communion together. And then you have Jesus who is alone in the garden. You have Satan there offering a food, a substance, but more than that, right? What Satan offered in the garden wasn't fruit. What Satan offered in the garden was creation over creator. It was God has held out on you. There's something more he doesn't want you to have. If he loved you, he would have given you bread. If he loved you, he would have given you fruit. He would have given you that fruit. The fact that he didn't give it to you means he doesn't love you. He's holding out on you. So eat it. It's exactly what Satan tells Jesus. If he loved you, he would have given you bread. The fact that he doesn't give you bread means he doesn't love you. A temptation to make him want creation over creator. That's the same temptation, but listen. Jesus is the superior Adam. (laughs) I got an amen right there. Jesus is the superior Adam. What Adam could not do, Jesus did. What Adam did that plunged humanity into thousands of years of death and destruction and sickness and pain and damnation, Jesus undid with his obedience and faithfulness to God. He did it by having taste for God's obedience more than he had taste for food. To want God's obedience more than he wants the things of this earth. Thank God Jesus is the greater Adam. This is the sub-narrative that's here. There's another one. And that one is seen in the way Jesus responds to him. Jesus responds by saying this. Man shall not live by bread alone. Short and sweet. Okay? And what he's trying to say is real obvious. Okay? The Father's will is, is more food to me than bread. It's real simple. But what he's alluding to and where he's quoting that from is amazing. He's quoting that from Deuteronomy, which draws the reader's attention, draws Satan's attention back to another firstborn of God, Israel, who wasn't in the wilderness for 40 days, but was in the wilderness for what? 40 years. And did they ever learn this lesson? They never did. The lesson that Israel could not learn in 40 years of rebellion and grumbling and fighting and and not trusting God, Jesus mastered it in 40 days. Israel has been replaced by the greater Christ. Jesus now is the faithful son. That's not replacement theology if there's any nerds in here. Okay. Um, Jesus is the greater Israel, he's the greater Israel. I'm so glad for that. So the lie is that there is sonship without hardship to which God would say, no. Part of being a son is that there will be hardship. But we must trust his faithfulness and his providence. Lie number two. Lie number two is this. And I stole this phrase and I couldn't figure out who I stole it from, so I'm quoting whoever out there said this. Line number two is that there is a crown without a cross. That there is a crown without a cross. Look at verse five through eight. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Something supernatural here going on, right? Somehow they've transported to some kind of a high mountain and and, and in that mountain it sees over all of the kingdoms of the earth. So Satan is taking him to a place where he says, hey, you see all this? Drink it in. Verse 6, said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. In other words, I'll give you all this stuff. This will be your kingdom. I'll make you the king, Jesus. For it has been delivered to me, eh, wrong, and I give it to whom I will, eh, wrong. You can play this game too. If you want to, eh, you can do it. It's cool. I won't, I won't, uh, I won't fight you over it. Verse 7, if then you will worship me, it will be all yours. Eh, wrong. I love this game. This is great. I could get the Book of Mormon and I could read it and you guys could just, eh, eh, no. <laughs> what is the lie here? What is Satan trying to get at Jesus with? I have to explain something to you. God the Father promised Jesus a crown. 
He told him and promised him that there would come a time where, where, where Jesus, who was already in glory, would rule a new kingdom, a new kingdom that is made of restoration. This world, all things, would be delivered to Jesus and he would be the rightful heir to all things and he would rule with power and he would have a bride, you and I. This is the crown that was promised to Jesus. Do you know that? Jesus knows that and he is intent on it. He's looking forward to it. He's anticipating that crown. But there's something that stands in the way and that is the cost of the crown. The cost of the crown is a cost that only Jesus can pay. It is a stewardship that only he can bear. It is something that only Christ can purchase. No one can do it for him. Only the spotless lamb, only the perfect savior, only the Messiah can make atonement for sin. Only Jesus himself can purchase the bride in the necessary way. And Satan knows that, and he knows that, Satan, or that Jesus is terrified of the cross. How do I know that? The Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has a panic attack, sweating drops of blood in fear, not of man beating him. Jesus wasn't a coward. His fear is that the wrath of God is about to pummel him in a way that no one else could withstand. That he is about to become sin and that God's righteous, holy indignation will be poured out and only he can drink that cup. Only him. He sees the crown, but he sees the cross that must be between him and the crown. And Satan comes in this terrible lie, and he comes and he says, hey, I know you want the crown. I can give it to you without the cross. Listen to what Kent Hughes says about this. He brings an insight into this I want to highlight. He says, Satan presented Christ with a fantasy, a fantasy-like vision of the world in which nations stood ready to abandon their idols and accept Christ as Lord. He could win the world without pain. The enemy promised. No weeping over Jerusalem. No crucifixion. The great countries of the world, Israel's elect nation, the mighty Roman Empire would all open their gates to their new king. You notice what Kent Hughes says here. He says that part of Satan's lie was that nations would abandon their idolatry. Jesus was ruling the world before he became a man. Do you realize that? Satan is tempting him with something he already has. He already had the glory. He already had the supremacy. He already had the rule. But what he didn't have was the heart of his bride. What he didn't have was death to sin. What he didn't have was the redemption that the cross would purchase. What he didn't have was what could only take place by the power of what happened in the cross. And he knows it. So Satan is lying to him and telling him that he could give him something that he cannot. Because Satan cannot turn the hearts of men. Only Christ and the cross and the goodness of God through regeneration can change the hearts of men. The temptation is pretty sly. The temptation to Jesus is similar to the temptation that we experience. And that is that we as Christians can attain a crown without a cross. Satan is there at the door every day trying to make you believe that. What is the crown? The crown for us is the glorification of heaven. And what is the cross? It's the, it's the in-between. It's the middle place. It's the already not yet. What is the cross for us? It's having to be sanctified. It's having to grow. It's having to mature. It's a hard place. His lie to us is that to be a Christian is simply to be saved and not to be sanctified. That's his lie. He can't change your salvation state. Did you know that? You're saved, you're saved. He can't make you unsaved. But what he can do is he can stunt your growth as a believer so that you are worthless to the kingdom of God. 
What he can do is he can lie to you and make you think that there is no thing for you to change or grow and you just sit on your justification card, you sit with your fire insurance, you sit with knowing that you're saved and you never grow, you never change, you never become like Christ. That's what he wants you to do. He wants a church full of believers who are sleeping, not useful. He wants a church of believers that are not growing, not challenging each other, not repenting of sin, not obeying God, not walking in spiritual gifts, not valuing Jesus. He wants a church of people sitting, eating donuts, and going home. If that's what heritage is, he won. Now, we may still be saved, but God did not save you just to be saved. God did not save me just to be saved. God saved me to do a work in me, to make me like Christ and to put me to work for his kingdom. There is a process of spiritual maturity. There's a process and and many of us don't like it. When the author of Hebrews is writing to his audience, he's talking about all of these amazing Christological things that Jesus is. Jesus is Melchizedek, comes from the line of Melchizedek, all this crazy stuff. He's unpacking it, and then he gets to this point where he goes, you know, I'd love to keep explaining this to you guys, is what he says, but you guys are a bunch of babies. He literally says that. He says, I would love to keep telling you the weightier things, of the word, but I can't because you are so immature that you can only drink milk. He says you should be the teachers and instead, you're still babies. This is what Satan wants for us. He wants us to stay babies. He wants us to stay in prolonged spiritual adolescence. Never growing up. Never serving Jesus. Never ministering the gospel. Just sitting on our couch, metaphorically speaking. The true process of growth is hard, and Jesus had to go through it. He had to learn obedience. That's what Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Listen, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How did he learn obedience? Through what he suffered. He learned obedience through hardship, through struggle, through temptation, through weariness, through days of having to retreat to the wilderness to pray to the Father because he was so drained. This is how God sanctifies saints. Through the hard work of refinement, the process of faith is not come on its own. It comes through a refiner's fire, the Bible says. Heat, lots of it. I love how John Piper talks about the refiner's fire. He says, the refiner's fire is not a forest fire. It doesn't just sweep through destroying everything in its path. And sometimes we feel like that. Sometimes I feel like life is just a forest fire, just wrecking everything. My marriage is wrecked. My job is gone. My health is gone. Whatever your situation is, it feels like God's just a wrecking ball and that it's a forest fire, but that's not true. God is a refiner's fire. What is the difference? A refiner's fire wrecks everything in its way. I'm sorry, a forest fire wrecks everything in its way. A refiner's fire is concentrated, intentional heat for the purpose of purifying gold to its purest form. Your faith is gold. It's the most valuable thing about you. Satan can't get at it. It drives him crazy. You can lose your health. You can lose your body. You can lose your family. You can lose your money. Your faith will remain. And God oftentimes must burn away the impurities through suffering, through temptation, through hardship. This is not a popular gospel. But it is the process of sanctification. It is the process of maturity for us as believers. I want to read you a quote that inspired this entire teaching And I was so thankful that I got this text because it just made so much sense. Dr. Robert Clinton, he said this. Don't write him off because of the last name, okay? I'm just... (laughs) He goes, oh, Clinton, well, Is this something about why you lost or what? No. Okay. Yeah. uh. 
<laughs> Never should have taught you guys that. I'm sorry, Jeff. They're going to be like, once in a while now. Okay, this is what he says. He says, God is concerned with what we are. We want to learn a thousand things because there is so much to learn and do, but he will teach us one thing, perhaps a thousand ways. Isn't that good? Man, we just think that there's so many things I have to do, so many things I have to learn. I've got to drive faster. I've got to text while I drive so I can get to where I'm trying to go. I've got to read uh, stuff while I'm at the table with my family because I've got to be used and grow and get more knowledge and more this and more this and more this and more degrees and more money and more this. And God says, I'm trying to teach you one thing, to trust me. And I'm having to teach it to you over and over and over and over and over and over again because you don't learn. It's like Israel in the wilderness is over and over and over they disobeyed. He said, forget it. New generation. He's trying to teach us one, one thing, to trust him. Freedom comes by obedience, guys. Freedom comes by obedience. Freedom doesn't come by lack of having to answer to anyone. Freedom for the believer comes when you say, okay, God, I tap. I'm ready for you to run the show. Jesus' response, he answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. His response is very simple, is that only God... Only God can tell me what to do. Only God can direct me. He had confidence. Number three, the third lie is this, that there is glory without guidance. That there is glory without guidance. Look at verse nine. He took him to Jerusalem. Okay, again, some kind of a supernatural thing happening here. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple Okay, pause. Josephus tells us that, that the pinnacle of the temple was the higher portico. It was 450 feet up above the, the, the valley. Okay, and Josephus said when you looked over it, your stomach would turn. Like you just, you just felt like dizzy. It was a dizzying height. So Satan transports Jesus some out of this dizzying height and said to him, if you are the son of God, again, challenging his sonship, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and then he quotes scripture, Psalm 91, he quotes, he says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on the other hands, or on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan is getting more and more crafty with each of these. He says, oh, so you want to quote scripture? Great, I can quote scripture. So you believe in God's word, huh? Well, let me tell you God's word, and let me show you that God's word is telling you to do this. The real heart of this temptation is to get, again, to get Jesus to step out of the Father's will and to test the Father. If you're the Son of God, then prove it. Throw yourself down and let's all see your majesty. Let's all see your glory. Let's all see your power. He's telling Jesus that Jesus should lead the Father, but the problem is, is that the Father is to lead Jesus. How many times are we tempted to say, God, I'm just going to do this. I don't really care what you think. You'll clean up the pieces. Now, that's pretty blunt. Sometimes it's a little more, ca you know, camouflage than that. Sometimes we really spiritualize it up. I just feel like the Lord's calling me to leave my wife. Eh, no. I just feel like the Lord is really calling me to, to you know, just, just uh, marry this non-believer. I just feel like it's just a really good idea. And I think God will, well, God will redeem it. Yeah, God redeems lots of things. But don't test the Lord. What has he said to do? If I had a dollar for every time someone blamed God for their stupid mistake, which is Lord, I just feel like the Lord was leading. No, he wasn't. Did you read the word? There's nothing in there about leaving your wife. In fact, quite the opposite. The temptation is to step out of the Father's guiding and to step into your own understanding. That is the temptation. In Jesus' response, he says in verse 14, it is said that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We don't test him, he tests us. 
We don't lead him, he leads us. We must submit to what we know he has called us to do. And whatever that is, whoever you're married to, whoever your kids are, whatever your job is, whatever your circumstance is, God has called you to walk through that. He is leading you, you are not leading him. God, give us the strength to press through that, amen? So Jesus has shown in all three of his responses that he is willing to receive hardship. He is willing to receive the hardship of sonship, that he is willing to receive the crown through the cross, and he has shown that he is willing to receive glory through God's guidance. Jesus lived the perfect life. Glad for that. Now, that's the playbook of temptation. What is the battle of temptation? Let's turn now and, and just ask ourselves the question, how do we battle temptation? Note takers, four things. Note takers love four things. It's like the best. Four things, okay. Four things. Number one. And the question, rather, is how, did we, how do we battle temptation like Jesus? How do we battle temptation like Jesus? So four things about how Jesus battled that I want to note and highlight. Number one, he battled well because, number one, his ears were filled with the words of the Father. His ears were filled with the, water, with the, with the will of the Father, the words of the Father. His ears were filled with the words of the Father. When Satan came to him and hit him, what came out? Scripture. Jesus was like a sponge who was so saturated in the word of God that as soon as Satan hit him, scripture came out. May we be that way. May we be so rooted in the word of God that when Satan comes to us and comes at us, scripture comes out. Satan is the anti-truth. And the only remedy for the anti-truth is the truth. And the only source of truth is God's word. We must meditate on, fill our minds with, fill our ears with the word of God. As the psalmist says, I have hidden your law in my heart that I might not sin against you. As Romans says in ten seventeen. so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy because that's probably where he was reading. Probably where he was doing his devotions. All three of the responses, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. If, so, if Satan attacked me right now, I'd just be Romans. Romans, Romans. That's what I've been reading. I'm taking a class on Romans. I'm thinking about Romans. Romans. He's in the word. He's fixated on the word. And his glory came through his guidance. His glory came through God's guidance. So the, the, the point here is keep your ears filled with the word of God. Number two, Jesus' his eyes were filled with the plans of the Father. His eyes were filled, and I use that word filled very intentionally. It's as though Jesus was looking at the will and the plan of God, and it was so big in his eyes that he couldn't see anything else. It eclipsed everything else. The will of the Father was so magnificent to him, so valuable to him, so glorious to him, that he didn't see anything else. I love how John Piper says, he says that we should look at God not through a microscope because microscopes make little things big. We should look at God through a telescope because telescopes make really big things look even bigger. <laughs> look like something we can actually see. Our eyes need to be filled with the size of God's plan. What he has for you is better. It's better. If you don't believe that, then obeying God is going to be religious for you. It's going to be hard. If you don't believe that his plan is better than your plan, then choosing not to sin, it's going to be torment. But if you see him as the ultimate value, sin loses its taste. Jesus was tempted but did not succumb because in his eyes, God's plan was big. That's why in the garden when he was tempted again, saying, Lord, is there any other way? Do I have to go to the cross? Jesus' response was, not my will, but your will. I know that the crown is worth the cross. I know that the crown is worth the cross. Keep your eyes on him. Number three, 
Jesus' heart was filled with confidence in the love of the Father. His heart was filled with confidence in the love of the Father. I love what, what Martin Luther said when he was asked how he overcame the devil. He said, quote, well, when he comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks, who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he's moved out and I live here now. Isn't that good? May our hearts be so filled with the love of God, with the gospel, that there's no room for anything else. Number four, Jesus' stomach was filled with the joy of obeying the Father. His stomach was satisfied, not with bread, but with the joy of obeying the Father. Listen to what Peter says in his epistle, chapter four, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Rejoice. What an interesting concept. We're used to this because we, you know, we go to church and stuff, but this is weird. Rejoice in your suffering? How do you do that? Rejoice in so far that you are share in Christ's suffering. The word that matters there is share. You rejoice because you're sharing in his suffering. You were walking where he walked. You're carrying the cross that he carried. That you may Rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for this, the name of Christ, you are blessed. Whoa. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Jesus' food was the obedience of God, not bread. God gives us this middle place. And it doesn't make sense sometimes why. It doesn't make sense all the time. Why, God, did you give me this middle place? Why the cross? Why not just the crown? Why do I have to go through this? This is hard. This is fire. This is refining. This is pressure. This is labor. This is difficult. Why did you give this to me? I want to read you a poem from a woman named Martha Nicholson who spent 40 years of her life unable to move, immobilized. God gave her a very hard thing to carry. And listen to what she said. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift which I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts and, and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn, thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. He has not given you things to hurt you. He's not allowed you to struggle, to be cruel to you. The cross becomes the crown. It is the thorn that pierces us, that will peel back the curtain for us to see God's goodness. It is when we are at our lowest that we often see our clearest. It's through the suffering, through the heat, through the struggle that Christ is manifest in us, that God does work in us, that we are made useful to him. And we are to count it all joy when we suffer for him and when we suffer like him. Never forget that he is your greatest treasure. And no matter what things look like right now, there is purpose there's purpose in it. Luke tells us two things in closing. He says, first in verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, what? Until an opportune time. Is Satan done with Jesus? No. What Jesus just did was the beginning of a war. And the war would continue for three years. 
until Jesus would shut the mouth of Satan and crush his head on the cross, just like God said that he would. Just because you've fought one battle doesn't mean that you're done. Verse 14, And Jesus, the last thing that Luke says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught, listen to this, and he taught in the synagogue, being glorified by all. Jesus went through the middle so that he could get to this place where he is now glorified by all. Before we can be used by God, God has to do something in us. And we have to let him. And I'm asking you, church, this morning to consider How have you hindered God from working in you? Perhaps maybe thinking too much about what God's gonna do through you and not enough about what he's gonna do in you. Lord, humble us. Would you guys stand and let's pray. Lord, humble us to receive the medicine of suffering. Humble us to receive the way that you sanctify us, grow us, change us. Lord, we would rather the crown now but we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the cross of Christ and we thank you for the cross in our lives, whatever that is. And I pray for those here this morning, Lord, that you would affirm this truth, that Holy Spirit, you would work this truth into the deepest places of our hearts. And that when Satan comes to tempt us, that we would be full of the scripture, that we would be full of the joy of obedience, that our eyes would be full of your best will. Lord, we choose, we choose you. We choose your plan. Help us, Lord, in our weakness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for your time. Lord bless you. Don't forget, pastor's coffee on the way out.